This is Deep Dive, WFHB and Limestone Post Investigate, where we look into issues regarding health, housing, and the environment that directly impact residents of Monroe County. We are looking into trees in Monroe County, what trees we have, what benefits they provide, and which trees to root for and which to root out. Indiana has 4.8 million acres of forest land, which is over 20% of the state's land base, according to the Indiana Department of Natural Resources. With these forests, you often see sprawling oak and hickory trees, which cover the vast majority of the state's forest land. However, you can also find beautiful and rare yellow woods, sour woods ornamented with white bell-shaped flowers, or even the paper birch with ivory bark that peels off in layers from the trunk resembling sheets of paper. This week, WFHB News spoke with Bill DeBoer, the sales and marketing manager of Woody Warehouse Nursery, a plant nursery specializing in native tree cultivation. I just basically got into native plants by happenstance. I did uh, two degrees at Purdue, and during my time there I took a course in dendrology, which basically is just the study of trees, and that lab was all about identifying native, non-native trees, shrubs, vines um, of Indiana and the Midwest, and so it just really lit an interest in me, and so I ended up coming back and being a teaching assistant for five years in that course, um, just loved it, and uh, through there started to get a niche for uh, plant propagation of natives, and um, did several jobs more in horticulture um, out of graduate school. Uh, was a commercial grower for a couple of years, worked in kind of a R&D lab for a couple of years, and then did landscaping and design because I was always interested in kind of incorporating natives more into formal, informal planting. And then really just by happenstance connected with uh, Woody Warehouse Nursery. and They were looking for, uh, at the time, a sales rep. And I love talking plants and and uh, selling plants to people, and so it was a uh, perfect fit to where I could kind of consult on the tactical level in terms of some of the things with propagation, but then really just getting out there and getting a lot more native trees and shrubs um, into the landscape in my role. DeBoer walked us through notable native trees in Indiana. First, DeBoer classified three tree species important to Indiana's ecosystem, the cherry, oak, and willow trees. You know, anyone who's studied, you know, books by Doug Tallamy and others, it's well documented that the three genera or groups that play a large ecological function in the landscape are oaks, cherries, and willows. Um, I'm probably going to skip over the willows as much because, once again, when we think willows, we think water. And a lot of situations are not 
thriving with water. Yes, we've got, you know, drainage ditches. Yes, we've got poorly drained areas. And that's where a willow is perfect. But in terms of that majestic, you know, beautiful tree, that's where the oaks really thrive. And we have got a lot of oaks native to the Midwest, much of which I'm sure a lot of people have not heard about or maybe just rarely or don't have a lot of understanding on, you know, uh, what they offer. But, you know, in terms of the oaks, uh, white oak is really at the top. You know, with our oaks, we've got white and red, and that's kind of a grouping. There's subtle differences, but a lot of the times when we're thinking about food sources and um, other for wildlife, the whites tend to be slightly better or more preferred. That's not to say the reds aren't, but our white oak grouping tends to be highly preferred for things that are eating acorns. Um, and white oak is really at the top of my list. It is probably one of our most slowly growing uh, oaks. Uh, it takes a long time to kind of get the machinery growing, but it is one of the most beautiful uh, native trees that we have in the Midwest, especially when they become sizable. Um, wonderful purple, uh, almost maroon fall color, and they just play host to a myriad of caterpillars, um, songbirds, uh, just you could go down the list, and oaks are really the main driver of a lot of different things from butterflies, moths, beetles, songbirds, uh, you know, um, squirrels and other, you know, rodents and wildlife all use um, oak trees as one of their main sources. And so that's where I go. If you're going to, if you're thinking about one tree in the landscape, try to make it an oak if you have a spot for it. Another tree DeBoer highlighted in Indiana's state tree, the tulip tree, known for its tulip-shaped leaves. The um, tulip tree or yellow poplar, or, you know, a lot of these trees have a thousands of different common names, it feels like, but uh, the tulip tree is a state tree of Indiana. It is a relatively fast-growing um, tree and one of our largest in the eastern United States. Um, they can get every bit of 100 feet tall, especially in uh, more southern, uh, outside, you know, southern Midwest into, you know, the deep south. But it's a in the magnolia family, and so what people fail to understand about this tree is that it has quite an ornamental flower, just like uh, the magnolias that we think about. But those flowers are held upright, and the base is kind of a yellowish green. And so if you're not really hunting for it, and since they're big trees, a lot of times you miss out on just what a wonderful flower that is. And then as you look inside, it has an orange ring. And so it really is quite striking, beautiful flower. But, you know, outside of that, it has one of the most unique um, leaves of any of our native trees. Uh, it's almost hard to describe. It's like a like an oven mitt that has kind of been flattened or, or scrunched at the top. Um, so there really is no other tree that's going to have a leaf 
similar to the uh, to the tulip tree. And then once again, um, there's a lot of different uh, caterpillar, butterfly species, moths that are attracted to that tree. And so uh, just by planting that, some of the more, you know, ornamental, beautiful moths and butterflies, uh, you'll get them just by having the tulip tree around your area. One tree that is helpful to know about if you are ever lost in the woods is the sycamore, which can be used as an indicator that there is water nearby, since sycamore trees typically grow close to a water source. DeBoer described what the sycamore looks like. The American sycamore um, is native to the Midwest. There is the London plane tree. When you get into urban environments, that tends to be uh, a higher uh, utilized species. They look very similar. There's subtle differences, but um, in general, um, the beauty of the American sycamore is that modeling gradient bark that they have. They kind of start off kind of grayish, flaky brown, and as you progress up the tree, they turn snow white. And so just by the bark alone, uh, it's a very striking tree. Uh, sycamores, though, are... Um, more of a wetland species. Um, they like that even moisture. They they can tolerate drier sites, um, but we're starting to see some disease factors uh, and thracnose coming in and kind of uh, disturbing the sycamores, especially um, in areas that are kind of outside their normal growing area. Another tree that is easy to identify due to its distinct bark is the shagbark hickory. Quite a few hickories uh, native to the Midwest. Shagbark and shellbark are um, pretty striking by their bark. Uh, sh- shagbark in particular tends to be slightly shaggier, if you will, or peeling upwards, but it literally looks as if you know somebody from the top of the tree started ripping uh, the outer bark up. Uh, it's striking uh, how these trees look, and as such, um, it is one of the most important trees for bat habitat. And so when they're doing a lot of environmental restoration, this is a tree that they hone in on um, because this is not a tree that we want to lose. Um, One thing that makes it most important is that um, hickories in general, especially shag and shellbark, are probably our slowest growing tree in the Midwest. Uh, you can anticipate, especially when it's young, probably only 6 to 12 inches of growth a year. And so when you start looking at a shagbark hickory that's 6, 10 feet tall, it's more or less giving you its age. That's a 6 to 10-year-old tree. It just um, spends the first couple of years putting down a very thick taproot. It's very slow. Eventually, it starts, you know, revving up to the, you know, uh, whopping growth rate of probably a foot and a half um, as it gets older. But, you know, when you're looking at a 60, 80-foot hickory, um, that is one of our older Uh, trees in the Midwest, uh, probably. And so a great tree, um, but you plant them and you have them for, you know, the next generation. 
they're a great tree because of the nut production. A lot of wildlife love the, the nuts that the hickories produce. Um, once again, you're going to attract lots of different moths, butterflies with hickories. And um, as I said in the beginning, it's just surprisingly, you have bats that roost within the bark of that tree, even though it doesn't look like it's possible. And so um, you want to talk about something that takes out mosquitoes and other pest things is our native bats are just a wonderful animal at uh, controlling the balance of insects, uh, especially some pest insects that we'd rather not have around. DeBoer touched on some of the more unique native trees in Indiana, such as the sassafras and the pawpaw. He said that the variation of sassafras leaves and its rich fall colors make it a notable tree. Sassafras is, I have a love-hate relationship with it. Um, I think it's one of our prettiest uh, trees in the Midwest. Our nursery struggles to get enough seed to produce it every year. And so uh, it's always the bane of my existence because there's so much demand for sassafras and, you know, Woody Warehouse doesn't tend to get production pulsing. And so we're always on the lookout for uh, more seed. But that is one that has this kind of polymorphic uh, leaf structure, meaning it has variants of the leaves, even within the same tree. So you can have leaves that look entire, uh, kind of like a typical leaf. You can have one that looks like a glove. Um, and so it's very interesting in the fact that you see such variation even within the same tree. It has one of the most stunning uh, fall color, um, if you're really into the rich colors, because it really gets that scarlet, red, orange uh, color to it predominantly. And then this is a tree that is dioecious, and so you have male-bearing flower trees and female-bearing flower trees. So you need both um, to get the seed. But then this droop is is so beautiful in its own right because it has this peduncle that is red, fire engine red, and then the actual cedar droop is like blue. And to make matters even better is that songbirds love it. And so um, it's a wonderful one for uh, songbirds, highly ornamental. And then once again, that whole group, the uh, Laureaceae family, really is an interesting butterfly magnet. And so um, that's a really great one to have when you have it. It just tends to like, once again, acid soils, well-drained soils. We see it a lot more um, in the southern part of the state. Also in the northern, it's just very hit or miss in the the central part of Indiana. But just a, a great tree. It tends to thicket and colonize. You, you see it in two forms. It can be a 60-foot standalone majestic tree, but very often you see it on a woodland edge as kind of a colony of almost understory-sized sassafras trees. So a really great one uh, to have. He expounded on the topic of the pawpaw tree. The pawpaw produced a sweet fruit with a custard-like texture. DeBoer noted that despite its initial impression, he enjoys the taste of the pawpaw. Love it. Fell in love with 
with it the first time I was offered it. I think like anyone else, I go, what is this that you're handing me? And I don't want to eat that. Um, but it lives up to its name, you know, Indiana banana. Um, it really does have kind of a mango banana flavor, uh, custard texture. Shelf life is terrible. So mm -hmm. once they're ripe, they basically go from tasty to spoiled very quickly. Um, but, you know, this is um, just a, an amazing, wonderful understory tree uh, native to the Midwest. The leaves uh, really can be every bit of a foot, uh, foot and a half long. They look so tropical. Um, not the most pleasant smelling. You crush it up and it always, to me, smelled like diesel oil. Um, so it's not something that you want to crush up and make into a candle. But it is the host plant for the zebra swallowtail. And so that is a beautiful butterfly. And you start having pawpaws around and you will attract that swallowtail. And uh, great edible, uh, really functional in the landscape. It typically grows in woodlands, very sparse form. Uh, but if you bring it out and, you know, have a good, even moisture, then it becomes very pyramidal, very compact and dense uh, when you bring it into more full sun. It is one that uh, a lot of people get confused on. It is not um, dioecious. Um, it does have male and female bearing uh, components, but it is one that really requires different members for cross-pollination. And so uh, a lot of people talk of cultivars and whether, you know, it will pollinate this. But if you're growing wild-type uh, pawpaws like we do at the nursery, all you need is two to three plants uh, in relatively close proximity, and you will get uh, pawpaw fruit from that. Uh, the flower itself is a spring flower, very maroon purple. It just very weird. Uh, nothing else native has kind of that color. Uh, unfortunately, it is not fragrant and does have a slight odor because flies are the one that tend to pollinate that. And so anytime we start talking flies are the pollinator of a flower, it's usually an indicator that they're not the most pleasant mm -hmm. smelling. DeBoer also shared that the service berry is a good tree that provides fruit for the birds and is edible for humans as well. DeBoer also touches on dagwood as a flowering tree that does well in Bloomington soil. I could talk hours on just all the little nuances of the hundreds of trees and shrubs that we have native to the, to the Midwest. But in terms of my hot list, I would be remiss if I didn't mention service berries. We've got several service berries that kind of function from an understory tree to quasi-shrub, very large shrub. But, you know, smooth, downy service berry are our two main understory trees here um, in the Midwest, especially Indiana. These are just uh, wonderful across the spectrum of the year. Um, this is a tree that tends to have smooth bark with slight striations in the bark. So even the bark itself is, you know, ornamental and interesting to look at. Um, in springtime, you have white, fragrant flowers that just explode um, off of this tree. And so it is a great harbinger of spring um, in kind of March time to April. And um, 
then it's replaced by, you know, one of the common names of the species is Juneberry. Um, and it's just a moniker for the fact that the fruit on these tends to ripen around June. And, you know, these fruits are interesting because they also go through a gradient. They start out green when they're not ripe. Then they kind of shift to a reddish color. And then they finally ripen to like a purplish blue color. And about that time or before is when every bird uh, that is within a couple miles of the area is attacking and devouring those. Um, what I always love to tell people is I refer to that as the poor man's blueberry because it is such a wonderful tasting uh, fruit for humans if you can actually beat the songbirds to it. Um, but it's just, it's a great one. And then it follows it up in fall with just kind of like sassafras, rich uh, orange, red, yellow color. And so just a really great one. If you're looking for something, you don't have all the space in the world, that's one that's only going to get typically 20 to 35 feet tall and 15, 20 feet wide. And so um, if you have a smaller space, that is just such a great one that you can watch wildlife uh, have a little snack and just enjoy the scenery of it. Just absolutely. I try to tell people get a service berry, actually get two or three, but start with one. Um, dogwoods, uh, everyone always floats to flowering dogwood does amazing in Bloomington and areas where acid, well-drained soils. the central part of the state and up, uh, heavy clay is not its friends. Um, it is a little more finicky. It, it prefers that part sun spot. It does not want full sun, and it doesn't. It's not going to flower for you in full shade. So it's kind of the Goldilocks. Um, but that's another one. It's just beautiful flowers, red droop in the fall that songbirds love. Um, I tend to steer people towards pagoda or alternate leaf dogwood. Uh, the structure is pagoda of the branching, and so in the winter time, it's a beautiful architectural uh, plant to look at um, and then you get in spring it doesn't have quite the showy flower that flowering dogwood does but kind of like our shrub dogwoods it still is a pretty uh, white flower and then midsummer usually you get uh, bluish purple more blue droop and it's highly preferred by songbirds and then like a lot of the dogwoods then you get that burgundy really rich colors in the fall and it's just that's an amazing one that i i wish more people planted it's like the opposite of flowering dogwood it prefers medium moisture to a little bit more moist or flowering dogwood tends to kind of prefer a slightly drier you know situation but that's a that's a wonderful um understory trees that i'd recommend for people to plant bill explained which evergreen trees are native to indiana and gave some backstory on how one got the title of Indiana's interstate tree. In general, evergreens do not fare well in the Midwest. Um, pine trees in particular thrive in the Appalachian Range and more of southern uh, Midwest and below, where the temperatures are warmer, uh, soils are rockier and acidic. They do quite well there. Here... Uh, especially in Indiana, central part, we tend to be heavy clay, um, cold, 
and prone to drought events. And so the vast majority of evergreens either want that warm, well-drained acid soil or they want moist, rich, uh, cooler temperatures. And so we do have several native trees, a lot of which struggle um, at this climate. And so you can do sporadically through the state, even down in Bloomington, you may see red pine. Um, it's not native to that part of Indiana. That's more of a northern uh, pine tree, a colder climate. Um, a lot of times foresters back in the day would plant scots or how I learned it, scotch pine, because the bark kind of looks like scotch drink. Uh, that is a non-native. Um, but really, when we talk about what is a great native evergreen tree, we have to look at eastern red cedar. Uh, Juniperus virginiana. That is one that is unaffectionately thought of as an interstate tree um, because it's typically planted by Indot and others and just naturally creeps in. It can tolerate poor soils and drought as long as you give it sun. And so this is one that has ornamental bark that's kind of multicolored and flaky, uh, disease-resistant, hardy to this climate. The cedar waxwing loves the little juniper berries uh, that are produced. And so, you know, if I had to single out what is the one native evergreen tree to recommend in Indiana, in the Midwest, it would be that one. The Indiana Department of Natural Resources runs the Valonia State Nursery in the southern part of the state. According to the DNR, these nurseries provide high-quality seedlings at low cost, and the nursery plays a crucial role in Indiana's reforestation effort. DeBoer discussed the value of the nursery and how Woody's Warehouse works in similar capacity to address the needs of urban forestry. The uh, Indiana Department of Natural Resources does have a, um, a bare-root nursery, and so they are collecting, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of seeds. They're growing plants uh, bare root style, which basically means at the end of the day, they're, they're shipping out, you know, in um, early spring. And the trees themselves have sparse roots to them. And they do it in masses. And so homeowners can buy in bundles, usually, you know, 25 to 50 count, um, you know, pawpaw trees, other things. And so it, it is a, uh, especially for that homeowner who's uh, trying to do, uh, you know, the back 40 part of their uh, estate with natives, it is a relatively economical way of going about uh, doing that. In terms of Woody Warehouse, we are providing several cities throughout the Midwest, uh, not just Indiana, Ohio, Illinois, Michigan. Kentucky, and a lot of the main cities do utilize us for urban uh, forestry, urban plantings. And so we, we work heavily with those municipalities to try to get more of these wild-type uh, native trees into that landscape. And uh, even though the urban landscape tends to be almost alien in itself, hot, salt spray, and other things, is that that doesn't mean there isn't you know, a good host of trees that 
can do well in that environment. Uh, obviously, I wouldn't recommend somebody planting a pawpaw, you know, right on the hell strip of a sidewalk right next to the road. It's probably not going to do too well in that environment. But once again, it's it's always doing the right plant with the right place. And that's why we have so many wonderful experts in the state and beyond that can really help uh, make those recommendations so that these plants don't just look good for a couple months and then get replaced with a new plant, but thrive for decades, uh, centuries to come. DeBauer explained why native trees are good for individuals looking to plant trees and why they're important to the environment. I think the easiest thing for people that are kind of sitting here questioning why natives is you know, you can talk about the ecological benefits and a lot of different things, but I think the first thing that connects and resonates with a lot of people is these are plants that grow here. And yes, urban environments can sometimes be construed as non-native environments, but these plants deal with the diseases here. They deal with the insects here. They are acclimated to our climate. And so when we think about native trees, assuming that we're, you know, selecting the right native tree, these are hardy, durable plants. Uh, these are not plants that require um, excess water, excess fertilizer, excess care. Um, yes, with any plant, you got to do something in the beginning, but once they get acclimated and entrenched, these are fairly maintenance-free um, trees and shrubs for the landscape. And so, you know, that's kind of the first thing is they're easy, they're durable. You don't have to pamper, you don't have to spray, you don't have to do all these things because they are natural. They're meant to be here. Um, and then obviously with a lot of the movements uh, from, you know, experts like Doug Tallamy and others is we're starting to understand how ecological benefits of native plants are just paramount to our overall ecosystem. Um, as we have watched less and less native plants in the landscape get replaced with non-native species, we've seen wholesale changes in birds and butterflies and bees. And so, you know, the more we study and understand those dynamics, you know, it becomes very interesting to understand how these native trees, what role they play in, you know, attracting certain things and, you know, having other animals reproduce and thrive. Um, you know, with most people, they wouldn't go, oh, man, this tree's attracting a bunch of bugs. That sounds great. But a lot of people care about songbirds. And so, uh, these songbirds are utilizing these insects that are feeding on these, you know, trees and shrubs, you know, predominantly for themselves, but heavily when, you know, they're nesting and producing young. And so without these native trees, you don't have the food sources that several of these other animals and organisms need in order to thrive and reproduce. And I think that's where 
you know, a lot of people are starting to see the, the connections of why plant a native tree versus something that I commonly bought from a big box store or garden center that does not offer that, that ecological edge. If you are listening and you have any questions about Indiana's energy grid you would like answered, or maybe you have some perspective on renewable energy you want to share with others in the community, you can email us at deepdive at wfhb.org, or you can leave us a voicemail at 802-552-3483. If you leave us a message, we would love to share it on a future episode of Deep Dive. One more time, in case you weren't ready for that, the number is 802-552-3483. Tune in next week to dive deeper and learn more about Indiana's energy grid. <laughs>